Welcome to the Vibrant Business Podcast, Stories of Outdoor Brands. Our first ever guest is Warwick McDonald of Ocean Divers. Warwick started this company approximately 30 years ago and built up one of the most successful scuba outfits in Victoria, Australia. So we're really excited to have Warwick as our first guest. This podcast is going to highlight outdoor brands in all different sports, action sports, outdoor sports of any kind. We're really excited about this. Touch on the business side. How do these stories unfold? How do these brands grow? Um, Who are some of the unsung heroes of the outdoor brand industry, outdoor sports? And Warwick is a great first guest for this. We're really excited to have him. Touching on scuba diving, but we'll cover all things from skiing, snow sports, skate, surf, do a bit of everything. So really excited to uh, have Warwick on. So without further ado, let's get going. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, here we go. Welcome to the Vibrant Podcast. Today, we are talking to Warwick McDonald of Ocean Divers in Melbourne, Australia. Um, Brought Warwick on the podcast to tell us about his business, tell us about his life, spending about half his life underwater. And uh, he's got some cool stories. So this should this should be great and right in line with what, what we want to be talking about on this podcast. Um, so Warwick, welcome. How are you today? Very good. Thanks, Tim. Great, great. So are you at uh, Ocean Divers today? Are you in the office or are you off doing other things and, and the volunteer work that you like to do? Where's your where's your locale today? Well, I'm actually at the Bentley RSL where I'm the president. Um, I'm in the office today. Uh, I'll be at the shop uh, on Thursday, the dive shop on Thursday. I spend most of my time well, moving between these two places, either the Bentley RSL or Ocean Divers. Cool. So you're doing uh, doing what you want these days, it sounds like. At least, at least that's uh, what we'd, we'd hope for. Yes, that's right. Um, I've tried to put more back. Put more back into the community uh, is probably my goal. I've always been, you know, fortunate enough to be presidents of uh, different associations and clubs um, in the diving industry. And now I'm sort of branching out. Uh, I served time in the Navy and uh, I'm an RSL member. So I became president of the Bentley RSL uh, a year ago, actually. And uh, before that, I was vice senior vice president for some time. And it's always been a a thing on the side for me but now i'm sort of making it almost full time very cool very cool um well that's what you get to do when you've built a successful scuba diving empire like you have uh so tell us a little bit about yourself um where are you from originally well i was born in melbourne i mean a place called ringwood a suburb called ringwood which in those days uh long long time ago in the 40s of course uh, was all farming belonged to uh, my grandfather and his property was called Breakneck and um, he subdivided it after a while um, and my parents moved away from him and moved to South Oakley which was then a war service area uh, my father having served in uh, the desert and in New Guinea um, and was uh, wounded and sent back to Australia. Um, they bought a home in a market garden area. Actually, I can still remember all the potatoes would grow naturally everywhere. You know, it was all rutted like they do with market gardens and uh, try and walk to catch the nearest bus, which was, I suppose, only 
a kilometre away. Seemed a long way as a little kid in those days. Um, so that, that's where I started. In fact, I was born in the Ringwood Hospital, which my grandfather built, the original hospital, which is now at Eastland Shopping Centre. Um, so that's a, a, something a bit different, <laughs> you have to say that. Yeah, yeah, Eastland Shopping Centre, that's quite the uh, extravaganza up there. That's um, uh, quite the monstrosity of a shopping centre. Mm. Sure. Nice, though, nice, though, nonetheless, but uh, it's... It's a yeah, pretty massive structure up there. Um, so you grew up in Ringwood, so you were kind of landlocked in a way. You weren't like growing up right on the coast. You weren't walking two minutes to the beach or anything. So how did scuba diving come about? Well, my father was a, a keen fisherman, and uh, he would often take me to places like Pallet River or out on the bay, um, Fishing, you know, the hire boats from Mordialic, I can recall, a long time ago. Um, and he and another friend of his, a guy named Basil Purzel, got hold of some, some movies they brought in from America. Basil was uh, very well off and had a beautiful home in uh, Oakley, I remember, which just amazed all of us kids at the time because he had a, uh, a factory made soft drinks. So the place was full of Boone Spa soft drinks. <laughs> so it was great for us to go to there. But he started showing my father these films of divers, the first divers at the time in the USA. And uh, that started about the same time as Cousteau started, actually. Um, the Americans started almost the same time, although we only ever hear about Jacques Cousteau, the inventor, so-called inventor of the aqualung, which he probably wasn't, uh, but uh, his partner, Gagan, was, <laughs> which is an interesting story in itself. But they started watching these movies and they kept saying to each other, we're going to do this, you know, it'd be fish and chip night on Friday night and oysters, always lots of oysters. And... As they were eating all this stuff, I'd, I'd watch these adults talking and saying they were going to take up scuba diving. They never did. But I did. I got stuck right into it. My father imported a mask from Italy for me. Um, I used to wear jumpers and I started snorkeling, spearfishing, no snorkels, until I read an article in a European book, actually, a magazine about how to make your own snorkel. And... It just led on from there, and then Dad brought in a pair of uh, Cressy shoe fins. I remember the first fins that were around on the market at the time overseas, and uh, picked my size. Whether they're too small or too big wouldn't have mattered. Trust me, I would have just managed, and uh, that got me started. And then I got into scuba diving in 1961. I was only young, and uh, in 61, I went down a Middle Brighton Pier with my spear gun. I jumped in the water, and as I swam along using this device on my back, uh, 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 which I had no idea how to use, <laughs> borrowed it off a, a friend whose father was in the Navy and uh, had brought it back with him from Holland, actually, and I speared a big dusky maw, big butterfish on scuba, very unsportsmanlike wow. these days. That <laughs> I was hooked. So was that was that like your first try, your first shot, and, right. and you brought home yeah. brought home dinner for the entire week? Uh, so so one one thing to uh, back up on a little bit, Basil. Uh, I think I've met Basil. Is he uh, is he friends with Brad Brad Birchall? No, no, he's not. No, he's. They Basil, wouldn't know each other. No, 
guys okay. went to God a long, long, long time ago. Okay, okay, because okay, okay, gotcha. A different Basil then, but yeah, Basil, you said this this fellow was the Basil, your Basil that you're referring to. He's um, he was some kind of a business mogul. Did you have business influences in your life early on? Was that part of your psyche, part of your your growing up, um, uh, having well, mentors? Yeah, it's where I had my first job. I worked for him. He had a business, one of his businesses, Travelite Trailers, uh, BEP Ironcraft in Huntington. And uh, I used to go to the factory after work, after school, <laughs> after school, and uh, work in the factory and work there weekends as well, just doing machining and making things. And uh, quite a few times I would sit down with his son, Ian, who was the manager, and say, you know, we, we're just not doing this efficiently. You know, I was a young guy, but I could see that there was, you know, a lot of mistakes being made in the factory and it was just done one way all the time. I, I used to say, this is just inefficient. So we started putting through a few systems and I did that for about uh, well, two or three years um, and then eventually just left there, went to, uh, you know, back to school and, didn't do very well at all. I was a bit of a wild child, to tell you the truth, and uh, can't really tell you what I used to get up to. Some very bad things. <laughs> and I, I, um, excuse me, one second. So, so you're skipping, skipping school and uh, heading out spear fishing. It sounds like. Yes, that's right. Um, I was diving all the time. I, I couldn't stop. Um, I was absolutely hooked. Uh, you know, I used to wag school and go diving. Uh, my mother might see this. She's still alive. <laughs> um, I was, uh, you know, all sorts of trouble. And uh, I realised the only escape for me was, uh, or I was in trouble with the police and whatever. And I could see that all happening. I was on the path of destruction. So I joined the Navy. In fact, I signed up to join the Army and my father signed the papers before I left. I went into Albert Park, did the medical, did the exams came back and dad said well son did you get in and I said yes dad I did and he said three years in the army I said no dad nine years in the navy he went what wow <laughs> being an army man himself so is that just like a check did you just check a box like actually I'll do I'll do nine just triple that and yeah. or how does that work and I had a choice of six or nine and I signed a checked the box for nine and the sailor that was interviewing me said, you are crazy. And I said, when I do something, I do something. I don't muck around. I've always been the same. I've never changed. I commit myself wholly and solely, much to my detriment. And <laughs> my partner would tell you, she would say, yes, one focus, boom, away I go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, that's interesting because you weren't uh, necessarily excelling in school in, in your traditional studies, but it sounds like you were excelling in, in plenty of other areas of life uh, with that focus mentality. So pretty, that's pretty cool. So then, then where, where did you go? Was this uh, in Victoria? Were you stationed close to home or did you ship off somewhere? Uh, no, I shipped off. Uh, I joined as a clearance diver, um, got through the, uh, the recruit stage of that, went to HMAS Rushcutter, which no longer exists in Sydney, um, and 
didn't finish the course. I had an accident, um, you know, much to my whole life regret, I've got to say. I didn't ever pass out. I uh, had a car accident and, yeah, that was basically the end of me. I was in the Navy then for another year or so, two years, something like that. It took me ages to get out of the Navy. They gave me a choice. I could be a ship's writer meaning I'd just stay on land all the time. I could never go to sea again and could never dive in the Navy again. And Or I could be a chef. Well, if you've ever seen anything or eaten anything I've ever cooked, you would see that would never work. <laughs> gotcha. Except, <laughs> no, except for maybe some no, rock, no, rock no. Uh, sashimi. That would probably be good, I'm sure, fresh off the boat, yeah. fresh off That's the spear. Right. So, what, so what, what year what year are we talking here, um, uh, Warwick? 1967 now. Um, so I was out of the Navy in 1967 and um, I walked into a dive shop. There was only two of them in Melbourne, in Victoria. And I walked into the dive shop to buy some spearfishing equipment because I was still mad keen on spearfishing. And my whole time in the Navy, I was competing in Australian titles and state titles and interstate titles. Um, so I just loved spearfishing and killing yeah. these days. just like horrifies me what I used to do. But um, I, you know, I travelled every chance I got, even when I was in the Navy, to, to these competitions. But uh, when I got out anyway, I went into the shop, Air Dive Equipment, Victorian Aqualung Centre in Paran, High Street Paran, and uh, there was a sign on the counter, I think it was, uh, saying, Help wanted, you know, one of those corny signs. I went, oh, I'm help. What can I do? I can dive. I can do stuff. You know, I might not be able to dive in the military anymore, but I can, you know, recreationally dive. I can do stuff. And they said, we don't do any diving. We manufacture diving equipment. We wholesale diving equipment and we sell diving equipment. And we need someone to answer the phone. Oh. <laughs> right. Well, I felt you've got to start somewhere. And I needed a job because I was just doing nothing at the time, waiting for the Navy to make up their mind what to do with me. And um, so I took the job and I worked on a switchboard with those plug-in doobers and switch things that everyone would touch. This was, this was some kind of a call center where people calling <laughs> yeah. for, for sales or were they calling because they didn't know how to use their regulator or what, 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 what oh, was no. the nature of the, the calls? It wasn't so much training in those days. It was uh, all to do with selling. And we were in wholesale. We manufactured wetsuits or someone else at that stage manufactured wetsuits. But we grew into, I was there for 11 years, and we grew into the world's largest scuba diving equipment supplier per capita in the world. Largest in the okay, world. Okay, wow. Very interesting. Yeah, massive big company, 65 people. We moved, we bought a picture theatre, we put our factory in the picture theatre. We then moved from there to uh, Abbotsford, then we moved from there to Clayton. You know, it, it was just enormous. And hmm. uh, the owner is passed on and his wife has passed on since, which was very sad. So uh, remind me, what was, was, what was the name of this, this business again? What was the name of the company? Air Dive Equipment. Air Dive Equipment. Yeah, and they introduced brands such as Scuba Pro and Maris into Australia. Hmm. And they're some of the biggest brands now, especially Scuba Pro, 
the biggest brand in Australia. Yeah, of course. Very cool. And okay, so yeah, we're making making way here. So then what happens next? Where's when does Ocean Diver start coming into fruition? What's what well, plants the seed for that? Yeah, I left um and went abalone diving. I left air dive and went abalone diving. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and made a poultice of money, a lot of money, and it enabled me to pay cash for my house land package. I just paid cash for it. I said to the guy, how much deposit do you need? In those days, believe it or not, you could buy a house and land package. <laughs> yeah, you can make a, a good deposit joke about that in, in, in this market these days, about the well, deposit you need these days. Sell a few abalone, you've got a deposit. Yeah, $1,000 deposit. And I said, here's 11440 straight out of my pocket. <laughs> and he went, what? <laughs> I can't take that sort of money, you know. I went, man, I got it on me. <laughs> <I'll carry> it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right, interesting. Um, so you bought a house. Oh, there you go. I bought a house. Moving up then, in the world. Uh, yeah, I started... Um, and I went into another business that wasn't in diving. They're into wetsuit manufacture, and I turned them into a diving wholesaler. And that was called Anchor Wetsuits, and we became Melbourne Marine. And I was at Melbourne Marine for quite a few years until I had a, uh, a disagreement with the owner <laughs> about <laughs> shares I had in the business and the payment I received. Um, so I left and I started my own business, Warwick's Dive Centre, in Station Street, Moorabbin, in 1979. And I then ended up in a period of time uh, with five stores and I bought one of the stores I bought was called Ocean Divers and I bought that in 1984 or 85 and um, I changed the name of the three stores I had at that stage um, to Ocean Divers. So I was buying and selling, doing them up and then selling them, buying out other people, wow. stripping them, big closing so you were down quite, sites, all of that sort of Quite a competent business person, it sounds like. You're, you weren't like the, the scuba bum that's just trying to make a few bucks here and there, figuring out business as, as you go. You, you sounded like quite the uh, mogul in the, in, the, in the industry. Is that, or, or you, you knew, what, knew what to do with it. I mean, buying, selling businesses. So is that just from accruing business experience over the years, the call center, a bit of everything, and you just kind of had the, the whip for it? Yeah. Well, I use my brains, that's for sure. Uh, my father was an accountant. Uh, for the taxation department, um, he instilled in me never claim everything, always leave something up your sleeve, which I could never quite understand, but that's the way he worked. A very, very honest man he was, in fact, ridiculously honest. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I just learnt. I learnt by experience, and I found in my time in the dive industry, in just in Melbourne, Victoria, you know, suburbs, of Melbourne, um, I've watched 147 dive shops go bankrupt, close down. Um, and that's since 1966. And I look at that and I just say to myself, they were all made the same mistake, basically. They were run by divers trying to run 
businesses instead of business people becoming divers. Hmm. And we see it all the time. What do salespeople say? Give me like, give me a whatever person and let me turn them into a salesman. Not give me a salesman and let me turn them into a diver or vice sure. versa. You know, it's right. it's this horse before the cart problem. And people come into it with enthusiasm, with all this sort of stuff, and just I don't know, they they don't have a good business sense, they don't have a business plan, they don't do the hard yards. And those hard yards are attending every sales conference you can attend, every equipment knowledge seminar, every anything you can attend to get your mind working, to think about how to run a business properly. Because you know what? There's a lot of smart people out there. And those smart people will give you one idea every time. And if you can walk away with one idea and use it in your own business, you'll succeed. The customer, by the way, is nearly always right. <laughs> I've got to say, they're nearly always right. Perhaps not all the time. But they're nearly always right or you've got to make them feel they are. Right. Well, that's a really interesting perspective because in this the outdoor sports industry, it's especially with scuba diving, it's very technical, it's very product heavy. You know, what's like you'd have to know. I would think you'd have to be a scuba diver to be out there selling scuba equipment to be providing customer service because it just seems so technical and there's just jargon and there's so much stuff you need to know. But you're kind of saying the opposite give me someone that knows how to sell and I can teach them the jargon and then let's put them out in the field and uh, we're, we're on our way. That's right. I don't want someone talking about how good they are in the water. That's not what it's about. It's about how good they want to make their customer. And the way I started was I had a niche group of people who I had trained. I taught them to dive before all the diving agencies started, you know, who are now big, big businesses. Another mistake. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I was teaching people and issuing a Warwick's card. In fact, 001 still carries his card. <laughs> He's a guy by the name of uh, Malcolm Cosgrave. He's a pharmacist. He's still got my card, 001. And he said he shows it proudly to people and still gets gear hired to him, still goes diving anywhere in the world. It's just amazing. Very cool. That card that I just printed off. <laughs> and and I, I want to back up. As, as... Was I made this... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I got this group of people, I trained them, I made them think my way, and I got them doing the best advertising anyone can do, talking. As they were talking, word of mouth is the best thing you can have in a small business. As soon as you get too big, you've got to go to radio, TV, whatever other media to advertise to get the word out there. But basically, you can survive in a small business just with word of mouth. And it is still to this day, Ocean Divers' best sales is the hmm. mouth. Is the sure, sure. Enthuse someone, they enthuse someone else. You know, there's that saying, what is it? Do one thing good and one person tells one person or something, but do something bad and they tell 10 people. Right. It's very true. So you've got to work on keeping your customers, keeping them happy and keeping them safe. And I've always had this thing about if I can teach someone to dive, I can therefore teach them 
to become a specialist in diving. I'll teach them deep diving, night diving, wreck diving, search and recovery, marine biology. Marine biology is so big now. Teach people about what they're actually looking at and they stop killing things. Mm. You know, they'll look at that little tiny nudibranch, that little sea slug on the bottom and want to know all about it. All you've got to do is stop them swimming, get them breathing slowly, relaxed, comfortable, warm. Guess what? I want to stay longer, Warwick. What can you sell me that'll keep me warmer? I want bigger tanks. I want more tanks. I want more knowledge, etc., etc. It just snowballs into a massive business plan. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it does seem like a word of mouth um, you can see the word of mouth unfolding. You know, if you go scuba diving with a group of five, uh, where's, where's the best place to get certified? Where's this? Oh, we went and did ocean divers. Um, check this out. Oh, we're going to Tahiti in three weeks. Where can we get uh, scuba cert? And they're going to ask their friends, you know, that's very cocktail party type talk. So that's, uh, that's really interesting. And especially, uh, it, it sounds like there's just so much execution in scuba diving. I mean, the business execution, you have to, the regulatory risk, the, the actual risk itself of keeping someone safe underwater. Um, you know, one, one incident I'm sure could uh, knock on wood, I guess, like take down a, a scuba, a scuba company. I mean, what, like how, how do you make sure that you're, you have such a high rapport from a safety side of it. I mean, that's entirely the operations of your business. So, so what's that all about? How do you keep people safe? Well, first of all, all of our staff are trained as high as we can take them. I was a course director with Professional Association of Diving Instructors, Paddy, uh, for a long, long time. In fact, I've been instructor with Paddy since 1972. Um, I went all the way. I then, my partner joined the business. <clears throat> she came to do a course. We won't go into that. She stayed. Now she owns the business or did. <laughs> I've recently sold it. Um, and she went all the way as well and became one of the first female course directors in Australia and is still ranked as oh, probably up the top four or five in Australia, female instructors. In fact, she's the best instructor without any bias that I've ever seen at all she's just amazing so you have these people and you you then they motivate and taking as apprentices other people who want to become rescue divers dive masters instructors and then course directors or whatever that high staff instructors that master instructors that highest level so we motivate them we train them so they're thinking then take they take ordinary let's say, recreational open water divers and make them advanced open water divers, make them deep divers. You know, you see how it works? It's this pyramid of going up. The instructors go up, the students go up. What have we established by giving them more training? We've made them safer. We've made them gear, equipment orientated. And therefore, they are, I hate to say it, spending money to stay in the business, sure. to stay in the business of diving, whether they're teaching it or just competing doing it. So you, you use the ranking system in scuba diving as somewhat of a customer lifetime value strategy, if you will. I mean, it's it's kind of a natural occurrence. You go scuba diving once, you're going to get an, uh, 
you, you want to go again, you get your certification, your level one, you might go and get a level two if that's, if that's how the ranking system works there. And then you, you just get more and more ingrained in your local dive shop. You know, you're upgrading your equipment. You're, it's got to be quite a, uh, a long retention there for your, your hardcore customers. They must stick around and come back for years. It is. And we looked at it and thought, thought after a while with our niche market, our group, I thought, you know, I've probably got about 600 people that are feeding into my shop. So I'd gone down to one shop by this stage. And I was trying to consolidate. And I said, how can I create more business for, for myself, you know, for myself and for my staff? What can we do? And I started to look at it and I went, what we're not doing is travel. Why aren't we, you know, we drive interstate, we drive to Mount Gambier and go cave diving, we drive up to Eden and dive the wrecks at Eden in New South Wales. We do this stuff, but why don't I put together a trip? And I put together a trip with a travel agent that's uh, since gone out of business, um, and we went to Vanuatu and New Caledonia. And I had 24 people. And in those days, you could open an account, which helped. I had a little bank account around the corner from my shop in, uh, in Station Street, Moorabbin. And uh, you could get a little card and someone would give me $20. I'd go around the corner. I'd stick the card in, you know, like the credit card into the hole and uh, pop, put in the $20 and $20 would then be on the card. And uh, I thought, this is great. So everyone that wanted to go, I would just open an account in their name but with me as the only person who could withdraw the money. And every, every time they came into the shop, they'd say, John, Bill, give me 10 bucks, give me 20 bucks, give me 100 bucks. And I just kept banking this money for them. And, of course, I had a few people that said, oh, look, I've decided not to go now. Can I have my money back? I said, of course you can have your money back at the end of the time. Sure, yeah. Like the departure day, which meant yep. that no one pulled out because they yeah. couldn't get their money out because I was the only one that could get their yeah. money out. So I ended up with all these people going away. Well, I have built Ocean Divers Business just about on travel now. We do wow. approximately nine trips a year. Some of them are as expensive as $20,000 down to about $3,500 to meet all sorts because those $3,500, which is a very cheap trip these days, those $3,500 trips, which were probably $1,000 back then, those people have grown. Their wealth has grown. Their sustainability, you know, their, their what do we call that? They own houses now. Their kids have left, you know, they're, they're baby boomers. They've so got most... the money and now they're saying, take me away first class. So that's sure. what we do. They're $20,000 trips. And it's mostly your market. A few questions about the business. Is most of your clientele local or is it Melbourne? Is it Victoria? Is it New South Wales, Eastern Australia? How far does your, your no, client base just, just Melbourne. Just okay. Melbourne. I have a few people from the country, I've got to say. Quite a few people come in from the country. But, you know, this is the way the business has always worked. But I did mention before, I have only just recently sold the business. Yeah, And I sold the sure. business one year ago, or 14 months ago. Congratulations. And I sold it to an instructor that worked for me. He's Chinese, and he has developed the Chinese market. Interesting. The business has exploded. Mm -hmm. 
our turnover is up about 50%. Wow. The, we moved into a fact, I did that before I sold it. I actually moved out of the premises, which I had in East Bentley, um, when I sold Moravan. Um, and we moved from a shop to, to upstairs to the shop, to next door to the shop. So we had three businesses going, uh, or three premises into one big factory, which is four or five times the size. And now we are busting at the seams in that with this new influx of Chinese customers. And we now have six Chinese employees and uh, uh, three, what do we call them? Anglo. Yep. <laughs> um, it's hard to say because Chinese could be Australian too. All right. Sure, sure. So um, Asian background um, six and yeah. Anglo background three. I think this is especially an important uh, thing to touch on in the Melbourne business climate these days. It's just obviously a a huge uh, opportunity for for that Chinese market for all types of businesses and for you to uh, strategically get get that going and bring people into the business that are connected to that culture and and can bring that in. I mean, that's just an amazing, amazing strategic move. So that's great. You know, for other other listeners in the Melbourne market, it's you got to take a page from from your book there, I think, and uh, think about the future and in those new blue sky markets that are about to open up for more and more people. That's right. That's right. And we've seen these changes over the years. I just don't think we have embraced them. You know, people say, "Oh, the Chinese are buying up everything at the moment." There's Chinese people everywhere. Well, that can sometimes be, did you mean Chinese or are they just Asian people you saw? You know, they could be from anywhere. But, you know, we were scared of the Japanese buying up Australia. We were scared of the Americans buying up Australia. We were scared of the, the, the Italians and the Greeks and the Vietnamese. And, oh, it just keeps on going. This is a multicultural country and you have to change with the times. We missed out on the Japanese. You know, the only place that succeeded with the Japanese was Queensland. Because they came in, they dived, they left, did courses and left. And the Queensland market has always been, thank you, ching, thanks for your money, and then gone again. You know, none of this keeping of clients. Where in Melbourne here, we're different. We have a huge Asian population in Melbourne, same as they do in Sydney, and we are retaining our customer base. We keep them with us. We take them away, we bring them back. So we do Chinese customer trips. We do Anglo, if that's the word sure. I can use. I, I don't know if I'm going to chime, in, chime in on the politically correct word either. I don't. I don't know. It changes frequently. So yeah, we'll just we'll just leave that one. Sound yeah. <laughs> Anglo sounds sounds good. Anglo, no, um, I don't know. <laughs> um, so what? That that's that's an awesome story. And congrats on the on the sale of the business. Um, because it's, I guess, to to be an outdoor-based business, there might be a stereotype out there that uh, the guy running this thing is some kind of beach bum that just wanted to scuba dive his entire life, and he's uh, scraping by, but he's, he's rich on life. But uh, in your story, it's quite the opposite. It sounds like this has been a huge success all the way from starting a, yeah, just in a call center, uh, building your empire, building your dreams, spending half your life underwater, and then uh, a successful exit at the end of that. That's, that's quite, uh, 
quite the remarkable business story. So I can't say it's been easy. <laughs> I have been very close to the wall a few times. Yes, almost a few, plenty of encounters with sharks, I'm sure, uh, uh, along, with, along with the bank accounts and the normal business challenges people face on a day-to-day -day basis. So, yeah, I'm interested Something to know I've how you levels. I need to share this with you. The people say to me, will we see sharks? You know, I'm scared of sharks. And I always say to them, the S word. The only shark you should worry about stands just behind the counter. <laughs> there you go. That's, that is, wow. That is the mindset of a aggressive business person right there. That's what I like to, that's what I like to hear. Um, very cool. And it's very true because I mean, do you really need to worry about a shark out there when you're scuba diving? Yeah, there's probably uh you're more likely to, to die on the way to the scuba diving site, right? I don't know. Crossing the road. <laughs> Crossing the road. is the most dangerous thing of all for scuba divers. When they look at all the accidents all around the world, it was going from the car park to the water. Yeah. <laughs> Either get knocked over, fall over, or heart attack, or who knows what else happens to people. But not sharks. In sure. fact, I love it with new divers when I take them away and I say, will we see sharks? <laughs> I go, Yes, but this is what you do. If you see one, form a circle. Everyone form a circle. I'll be in the middle telling you what to do, all right? <laughs> uh, I'll say, when we do, you're going to notice something. That. The first thing you do with your first shark is, oh, shark, oh, 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 like this, oh. The second thing you do is you start swimming after it, wondering why it's swimming away from you. You know, so, so what do you do again? I wasn't paying attention. You swim. You swim. Do you play dead, or do you just swim as fast as you can? I'm taking <laughs> notes that, now. Do you know what most people do? They the first thing when their first shark, especially a big shark, they'll pull back. You watch them. It's all about kinesiology, human behaviour. They pull back, and then they start swimming towards it. And the reason they do is because they realise just through that thing we have going, this thing up in our primeval thing that this thing is scared of me suddenly. I'm not scared of it. I want to see it. They want to take its photo. They want to get its signature or something like yeah. that. They start swimming after them. And I say, aren't you scared of sharks? Well, yeah. Then why did you swim after it? Well, it swam away. <laughs> they always swim away. <laughs> They're oh, just inquisitive. Can... They come up and see what you are. Yeah, sure, sure. Fairly docile creatures, just like those big bull rays underneath the pier that we see. Yeah. Um, sure. At the at the uh, and before I forget, at the uh, we met at an underwater wedding a couple weeks ago, so that was that was quite the adventure for me. Maybe that's just another day in the office for you, but uh, that was uh, that was quite fun. Yeah, you know, we've done the wet weddings, funerals, proposals, engagement <laughs> proposals. <laughs> I don't know what else. Uh, over an the underwater years, funeral. Yeah, we have <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure I'm sure the stories go on with with uh, the life you've lived there with ocean divers. So there's there's one story I really want to touch on here because this is quite unique and this might be the best story of all. So there's um, certainly the Australian listeners would be familiar with this, but around the rest of the world, maybe not so much. But the Prime Minister of Australia. And let's say you can correct all my facts after this in the 60s disappeared while he was in office mysteriously off the back beaches of the southern Mornington Peninsula, Portsea area. And 
this actually happened. It's just quite a remarkable story in history. And uh, uh, yeah, it's hard to, hard to imagine. But the guy disappeared. He was just gone. Went swimming or surfing. And there's all types of urban myths around this, all types of urban legends. Everyone's saying, oh, he was surfing. He was surfing by himself. It was the beach over by Gunamata. It was this other beach over on the other side. No one really knows the story. So I want you to clarify what actually happened and why you are qualified to do so with the disappearance of Prime Minister Harold Holt. All right. Well, I was there on the day. There was a Victorian uh, spearfishing championship on. I don't know if it was a state championship, but it was a spearfishing championship. And we all met at the back beach. We couldn't go into that area, that the very end of the Mornington Peninsula, um, where Cheviot Beach is, was at the time an army camp. It was the Portsea Officers Training Camp, or Army Officers. So we weren't allowed to go in there, but we would dive close to that, uh, near that boundary of uh, Portsea. And uh, we went over to the back beach, had a look at it. It was as rough as anything, huge rollers and swell coming in, and we just said, I remember we were all snorkelling as well, spearfishing is done on snorkeling. Um, and we went, this is too rough, let's go to the front beach. Oh, I would cry if I saw people do that these days. Probably while there's no fish there now, and not as many fish. Um, anyway, so we all went to the Portsea Pier and had the competition at Portsea Pier. Oh my God. <laughs> just horrifies me to think about Same Portsea Pier as today, right? Right out there by the Portsea Hotel. Exactly, where right? we all scuba dive now, we have this the tame, smooth rays, you know, beautiful fish everywhere. Uh, lots of small critters as well. And, you know, I hate to think anyone spearfishes there anymore. I know they do. Not allowed within, I think it's 50 metres of the pier or something, but they do. Um, anyway, we're all there. Next thing, these police came up to us and said, and we just hopped out of the water after the competition and said, could you please all come with us? get in your cars, follow us, get in this bus, etc. And they drove us into the, we said, yes, sure, bring your gear, you know, okay. Caught our wetsuits on, masks, snorkels, pins and everything, weight belts, off we go. We get over to the army camp through the army security area, down to Cheviot Beach, which is up near the point, point and pin. And they said, could you get in the water, join arms, start walking through the water. And I said, you know, as a few people did, what are we looking for? And they said, there is a, someone missing here, a swimmer is missing. And I went, hello. I looked up and I saw that there were some people in bathing costumes with towels around them, like security type people. They looked like to me. There were some, some big cars that were obviously government cars. And I went, uh-oh. So I asked... And someone said to me, it's actually Harold Holt, the Prime Minister of Australia. He's missing. He was swimming here. He was with friends, which will remain a secret. <laughs> he was with friends and he swam out. And we looked and Cheviot Beach is quite protected, but the waves coming in over the reef into the little beach area that's protected, like a, a little you know, harbour, um, was quite rough and I looked and went wow 
we'll be lucky to find anyone in this, the surge and the swell. Anyway, we searched and searched, joining arms, feeling with our feet, you know, for anything, nothing. It was so rough. And it got rougher and rougher. And with that, more police arrived. You know, the press, security people everywhere. And what, what and year was this? Is this 67? It was the 60s. Um, I don't know the year. 60-something. Okay. Need to know my history. I don't. Um, and, of course, we didn't find him. We found out later, yes, it was the Prime Minister of Australia, Harold Holt. And Harold Holt was the patron of the Spearfishing Association of Australia, um, the AUF, it's, it was called then, Australian Underwater Federation. Um, and we all knew him to be a great diver. He was a good spear fisherman, a, a water person, you know. And to swim in that stuff, I thought, wow, he was trying to impress someone. So, so he was just... Together. <laughs> Okay, so he was just uh, he was just swimming. He wasn't spearfishing. He wasn't surfing. He was just out going for a swim. A swim. Got it. On Chev Cheviot Beach, on the back Cheviot. beach of the Port Sea. Point of Pinch. Sure. Yeah. And so, who was he trying to impress? Why, why was he out there? It is rumored that perhaps there was someone else involved. Um, all I know, his wife, who be, became Dame Zara Bate later on when she remarried, appeared and people were hustled away, people came in, photos were taken. I presume there was uh, someone that couldn't be photographed. I see. Involved I see. in Okay, so he was showing off. Sounds like there might have been a mistress involved or something. We're not really sure. We don't have the facts on that. We can only infer. But How could you say? <laughs> but we've got lots of other facts there um, from somebody that was actually there on the day. And that is a, a very interesting story. And so he was in office at the time. And he... Then what happened? What happened to Australia? I mean, like who, like, did the news break the next day and the country went into hysteria or what, what's going on? Well, they continued the searching for some time, of course, and um, uh, nobody was ever found. Although I do remember um, a week or so later, these, I think it was the... Uh, Princess of Tasmania, it was called in those days, the ship that used to run between um, Melbourne and uh, Tassie to, Hope, to Launceston or Hobart, wherever it went. Um, someone sighted what they thought was a body floating near the, port, near the heads, the rip area, uh, Portsea there um, in the water. But of course, big ship, they can't stop and do something about it. And that's all I ever heard. It may have been anything, could have been a dead shark. Who knows? Hmm. Um, but that was the only thing I heard. Now, the rumours about a, uh, a dingo with a snorkel or a Chinese submarine, I think rumours and the conspiracy, you know, groups. <laughs> yeah, sure. Plenty <laughs> no, of conspiracies. A submarine. That current swept him away. Yeah. Current got him, swept him away, gone. Wow. Yeah. That's simple as that. An amazing story. And, of course, the new prime minister. New Prime Minister came in and uh, Australia went on as if nothing happened. 
amazing. Gotcha. If that had happened in the USA or Canada or England, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Australia, oh, she'll be all right, mate. Let's go. Australian toughness, right? You just kind of keep going. That's right. Just keep That's walking. Right. Put your head down. Keep working. Um, well, great. Great work. Um, I think we're about to wrap this up. It's been a fantastic podcast. It's been a fantastic uh, learning experience. Some great nuggets in there. Great advice on, on marketing, on word of mouth. Uh, just love what you have to say. And I think the inspiration with your career as a business person is just your you spent half of your life underwater you can still be a business person and you can be out there scuba diving you can be out there having a great time and uh it's this day and age everyone's thinking oh i want to be a tech entrepreneur i want to be the next mark zuckerberg i want to be the next steve jobs but you better be ready to spend the rest of your life in front of a computer screen if that's what you're trying to do so um if you really want to be uh, the scuba diver if you want to be out there building your outdoor brand business, whatever it might be. You're living proof that that can work, and and sounds like you can buy a house cash as well. So there you go. That's right. And of course, sell your business. Now I can retire. I have enough money to retire, although I want to keep working for the RSL, like I'm doing. Um, I don't get paid. <laughs> uh, it's all voluntary. But you know, I feel I can put back now put back in a different way and that's what I'm trying to do and I'm still diving I'm going away next month I'm away for the whole month in Malta and Sardinia and then going to Budapest as well and I'm cave diving you know I do the most risky type of diving there is I'm on a rebreather I'm deep diving I'm still doing everything and I'm in my 70s and I can't see myself slowing down for a while perhaps slowing down in business but not slowing down in diving because I just love it no telephones no one, talks, <laughs> no one bothers. You can't me. check your email <laughs> underwater. Well, you probably could, but uh, yeah. All right, leave that. Leave the technology in the in the car and get out there. Well, thanks a lot, Warwick. And for anyone that's in the Melbourne area going scuba diving, make sure you check out Ocean Divers. Maybe Warwick will be your instructor, and you can, uh, you know, get one of his cards. And... Cool. All right, Warwick. Well, thank you very much, and you you have a great day. Thanks for coming on. Same to you, Tim. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Vibrant Business Podcast. Really excited to get this going. Vibrant is a digital marketing and business consulting agency that provides growth strategies for businesses of all kinds, but we really focus in on the outdoor brand industries. Um, that's what we love to do. And we are Australian based, but uh, look all over the world for companies that inspire us. So head to our website, vibrant.com, subscribe. That's V-Y-B-R-N-T.com and subscribe to our newsletter to get updates on the next podcast. And you can engage with us, send us uh, suggestions on who we should have on this podcast. So really excited to uh, kick this thing off and get going. More episodes to come. Thanks.